Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. We are previewing the college football playoff this week. Two matchups with some of the bluest of blue bloods in all of college football. Notre Dame and Alabama play in the Rose Bowl in Texas, which is a very 2020 way to start 2021. Clemson and Ohio State play a rematch of last season's classic semifinal. To break down the games for us, Cole Kubelik from the SEC Network and ESPN joins the show. Nobody studies the teams like Cole. We go deep into Notre Dame's very narrow path to challenge Alabama. It's a tall task, but Cole has some ideas on how the Irish could slow down the tide. In the other game, Clemson has some matchups in the passing game that Trevor Lawrence should like, while Ohio State's road to success might be mashing away at Clemson with the running game. Plus, Cole, who played offensive line at Auburn, gives us his take on the Tigers' hiring of Brian Harson, the former Boise State head coach. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, Apple Podcast, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good review and a good rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is one of my favorites, one of the hardest working men in show business, Cole Kubelik. You can catch him on the SEC Network and sometimes on ESPN, uh, one of many ESPN fam- channel uh family of ESPN ch- uh, channels, he tried to say. You can also catch him on... Three man front. Am I getting that one right? I, I, you I got I, it. Yeah, three man three man front, which is WJOX. That's it. Yep. All right. So you can catch him on that uh, station. Alabama radio does that every day, and I'm, I'm sure you got a couple of other things, right? Cool. That you- <laughs> that's the uh, that's the consistent one. JocksFM.com, ten to two central weekdays. And then I'll be on the Outback Bowl coming up with uh, Tom and Jordan as well. So looking forward to that one. Oh, that's an interesting crew you got there too. Okay, so you'll have some, you'll have some fun with that. Tom Hart's one of the good guys in the business. He's a good one. He's good at his job. He's just not very good to hang out with and be around because you, it's, there's a lot of babysitting and coddling his ego. <laughs> um, so is he's great to work with because he's super talented. But as with most aspects of life, uh, there has to be people – you know, there's there's a management team for for the talent and the ego that comes with that, and that's usually where Jordan and I come in. Uh, you know, kind of trying to to lump that in and carry it around, and uh, just make sure he's happy all the time. Tom is getting, be- getting his um his um, mocha vanilla latte, whatever it is. And see, I already I, I would have screwed it up because I don't know, I can't remember what it is. So he, that would have been a, a bad start to the day that I couldn't remember his. Uh, white chocolate, mint, vanilla, latte, skinny, whatever it is that he likes. I just take black coffee. But obviously, when you're dealing with that kind of prima donna, uh, that's the kind of coffee order you get. Yeah, you know, again, Tom is a uh, is a is a high level talent, right? I mean, he is a talent, and he needs to be uh, he needs to be pampered a bit. So uh, I understand when you're working with a superstar, 
you got to pamper the superstar. Listen, I'm sure. Yeah, see, when you started that, I thought you had it nailed. You said he is a high, and I thought you were going to say maintenance individual, and I was thinking, yep, he's got it right on. Right, it's exactly it. But then you went high level talent, which he also is. But um, <laughs> high, high maintenance, I would rank above the level of talent. Well, we'll make sure to tag him on this so he listens to this podcast. I'm not sure if he's a regular <laughs> listener, but if we're going to trash him like this, he certainly deserves to get to listen in. Um, well, enjoy yourself. I know, again, you and Tom have been a good crew all year along with Jordan, so uh, so that should be a fun one, Indiana against Ole Miss. But I brought you on to talk playoff. Maybe we'll get you a little bit at the end on Indiana Ole Miss, but I got brought you on to talk playoff. You've always been my go-to guy when it comes to breaking down the X's and O's of the semifinals. We have a couple of semifinals this year that, well, one that we just saw last year and another one that has some familiar teams in it, in it. Nothing all that surprising. Some teams that you are very familiar with, especially in Alabama, doing a radio show in Alabama. But the good thing about Cole and the reason why I bring him on is, man, there's nobody who studies these teams better than better than Cole. I mean, he puts a lot of work into to, you know, watching the games, breaking down the film, and getting a good idea of what makes these, these two teams run. So let's start with... The Alabama Notre Dame game, my, you know, listen, we had a we had an earlier conversation to pull the curtain uh, back a little bit. Cole helped me with a story, which I'll tweet out with the podcast. So this is going to be a recreation of that conversation a little bit. And listen, Alabama is a twenty point favorite, so you know this might not be that interesting of a game but I'll ask you the same way I asked you a couple of days ago Cole like what how does Notre Dame make this interesting where is a way Notre Dame can sort of bridge the gap because ultimately it sort of comes down to the dudes and Alabama's got more dudes so what's a way that Al, that Notre Dame can overcome a lack of dudes I do think they have they have some dudes in their own right and and they have them in places that that could be very advantageous for the strategy that I believe that that Brian Kelly will implement for this game, and and part of it's very simple, and that is that is try and try and speed up the game. When I say speed up the game, I don't mean go fast. I mean speed up how how quickly the game actually takes place. Uh, maintain possession, limit the Alabama possessions, try to win the time of possession. Um, so yes, yeah, slow things down from the standpoint of. How fast they're they're calling plays, how fast they're going, how much time they take in between plays, but I think they need to eat clock, and they'll they'll do that on the ground. I think they'll do that with some quarterback movement, with some quarterback runs. Uh, the, the Ian Book obviously has good mobility, and being able to use that with some option plays, be it either some passes out in the flat, be it him actually with a read in an RPO or in a handoff or a keep, are all things that I think can be very advantageous. This, this Alabama defense has been caught out of place uh, multiple times this season. They've gotten a little bit better as, as the season progressed. But one thing, Ralph, that I think is a little bit of a misnomer about this Alabama team, and th- there are a lot of people that are really banging that drum of, oh, this defense is is really coming on late. Oh, th- this defense is is really looking dominant here late in the season. And you could, you could kind of start that off with the Mississippi State team that is – is one-dimensional and was not even good at the one dimension back on Halloween when they played them. A Kentucky team that was had scholarship numbers in the low 50s when they went to Tuscaloosa and, and was not a dual-threat team offensively. An Auburn offense that w- was hot and cold and was never super hot this year. An LSU offense that was depleted of star power and experience. An Arkansas offense that made the most of what they had but 
didn't have a lot of power um, outside of one big play receiver and and a quarterback with some SEC experience. I thought Kendall Browse did an amazing job calling plays for them this year. Um, and then a Florida offense that was really good, but put up over 460 yards against Alabama. So you could kind of go back and look at the best offenses they played, which I would say would be A&M, Ole Miss, and Florida. And, and two of those three had exceptional games, and another one had a, a pretty good game. So I, I think that there's, there's, there's a little bit of, of a false identity with this defense is just becoming dominant here late in the season because when you look at who they played, you should be dominant against those teams. And, and I think Notre Dame, outside of those three teams that I mentioned, and there's maybe one of them, maybe two of them we could actually debate. Um, actually, I'll allow one of them. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and try to pretend like Notre Dame has a better offense than Ole Miss or Florida because they just don't. I, I, I will not have that discussion with anyone. Texas A&M, we could, we could have a discussion about it. Um, I think they're actually very similar football teams, uh, top to bottom, when you look at, at, at what they have and, and how they play and how they win games. But what Notre Dame brings to the table that maybe no team has, and some of these teams that, that Alabama has played can offer you a good tight end and an athletic tight end and a flex tight end and a tight end that can cause problems in different ways. Um, but none of these teams can offer the tight end room that Notre Dame can offer you. And Ole Miss did gain a lot of yards because of pace, because of tempo. But Kenny Yeboah is a guy that, that kind of makes that offense go, and he had a pretty good game against Alabama. Um, the difference is you, you're – I don't know if, if, if they have seen the, the physical presence at tight end. Georgia's got a couple good ones. And, and I think there's, there's one thing that people sort of look at this year, Ralph, and I'm kind of bouncing all over the place here, but certain things pop into my brain at different times, so I apologize. There's this misconception, too, that I think you have to throw the ball around the yard to be good at football. And I, I don't necessarily think that's true. And I think the, the case in point are the two teams that we're talking about. I mean, no, Ian Book has not thrown the ball 40 times in a game this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Jones does not have to throw the ball 45, 50 times to go win. Alabama is a very balanced football team and could easily rely on their rushing attack if need be. Um but the, the, the tight end position is one that Georgia, I think, utilized to be able to steal yards and physically sort of impose their will at times. Now, they have a good offensive line and a good stable of backs. But I think what you get with Notre Dame is the mix that not a lot of other teams have to offer. And you get one who is just a, a physical thumper in Tommy Trimble, who's one of my favorite players to watch in college football. You get a guy, Michael Mayer, who can, who can stretch the field, who has receiver catchability and can be a mismatch wherever he lines up. So just because Notre Dame doesn't have a Kyle Pitts or maybe even a Jalen Weidermeyer, if we're talking about just overall athleticism, or a Kitty Boa, what they do have is two or three guys that can, can kind of do multiple things and do those things well, maybe better than some of the groups that they've played this year. So I think what we'll see is we will see Notre Dame slow things down. You will see a lot of shifts, a lot of trades, a lot of motion. You'll probably see a lot of unbalanced looks. Uh, you'll see some overload sets. And I believe by doing that and also some of the eye candy that you've gotten from some of these other teams, you'll be able to find Alabama lined up incorrectly. And when that happens, that's when you steal yards. And that's when essentially your opponent's giving you yards because you, you, you don't have to execute things perfectly to make them go. So – I think once you get that going a little bit, that's when maybe a bootleg, a rollout, some play action can really help Ian Book sort of push the ball down the field and be able to find some of those explosive plays through the air. Um, defensively, you know, I, I, 
I don't know if Notre Dame has the guys as much on defense because along with those tight ends, you've got a, a really, really good running back in Kyron Williams. And a really uh, good a offensive who does, line. Who, yeah. Uh, who does a lot of things well. And you've got a physical offensive line that will not be outmatched from a physicality standpoint. Um, now, some people will hear that and think that I'm saying that uh, this, this Notre Dame offensive line is just going to bully Alabama and push them around. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is Notre Dame will not be bullied themselves in this game. And the last time these two teams played in, in this setting, that's exactly what happened. And there is the, the physical mismatch is not there this time around. And I think that's, that's something that people kind of look at and they reference back to that 2012 BCS title game. And, oh, they ran through them and they did this and that. These two teams, number one, Alabama's built completely different. And I think Notre Dame actually has a lot more physicality now than they did then. Well, um, well on the Notre Dame offensive line, and you studied the offensive lines especially close because that was your bread and butter because you played there. Um, I mean, Notre Dame's offensive line, even with the center out, Patterson, who's a good player, um, I mean, you're talking about three NFL guys, maybe maybe all, maybe all, really all four of them uh, that are the remaining guys. I mean, you know, Eichenberg is probably a first-rounder, and Aaron yeah. Bang's a really good player. Um, Haney's a good player. So, you know, Kramer, these guys are all going to get drafted. So it's not, you know, again, like, you're right. I mean, usually you see Alabama's defensive line, and you think, well, they're all NFL players. Of course they're going to win the matchups. But that's a matchup that Notre Dame should be able to hold up. And, and I think actually not just hold up, but they, they may be able to, to, to win at the point of attack when things are straight up, when, when things are even. One of, one of the areas that I would be concerned about with Alabama's defense is that when, when they are very good and when they are problematic up front, it's usually because they are given the opportunity to be. And what I mean when I say that is that the majority of the explosive plays that the Alabama defensive front seven create are blitz and stunts. And so when when C.J. Mosley is asked to pressure and it's basically, hey, A-gap, on ball, go, be a, a human missile, he's really good at that. Uh, when Will Anderson is asked to slam inside. I think inside, you, meant, you meant Dylan, Mo- he's like, Dylan Moses, right? Who, who you you said C.J. Mosley. They're all the same, right? They're all the same. It really, it's been that Alabama linebacker has been time, like yes. the same type of players really for about 15 yeah. years and now, right? And, and I'll say, and C.J. was actually one of the more un, underappreciated guys there. D- Dylan's a good player. He is not C.J. Mosley's right. caliber. And, and um, you know, I think for me, I think Reuben Foster has been sort of the pinnacle of that when he was in an Alabama uniform. And then you probably go back to Rolando McClain after that. Reggie Raglan was one. Oh, sure. CJ Mosley did not get the credit that he deserved for how good of a football player he was. Super wiry, could really just kind of could, could kind of find a way to bend his way around blocks and make plays in the backfield. But uh, Foster had the anticipation, I don't think that I've, I've ever seen, of a collegiate linebacker. It was just uncanny where – he would end up where the play was going, and there were no keys taking you there. I, I, have, I still sometimes just wonder how I was watching things on film with what he did and how he reacted. But Dylan Moses is a guy that has super speed, super athleticism, and when he's shot out of a cannon, he can be lethal. And it's the same thing with a guy like Will Anderson. When, when he's asked to slant or when he's just asked to bull rush a guy or just get upfield, he's pretty good at it. But the read and react stuff is where this defense is not as good. And I actually don't believe that they have um, – they don't have that, that boulder, uh, that terrorizer, this, that, that, that disruptor inside this year. They don't have it. Uh, we know what they were with Quinton Williams a few years ago. We know what Deron Payne was. We know Jonathan Allen, Ashawn Robinson, Jaron Reed. 
They just don't have a guy like that. Yeah, Barmore. Saban, Barmore is good. Um, he has a and chance DJ to be Dale that guy. is he good. Could, he could be. Yeah, he could be that guy. He flashes. Mm-hmm. He becomes that guy at times. But Jonathan Allen was that guy on almost every play. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerron Payne was that guy on almost every play. And so that, that's when you're measured against that standard. Obviously, that's that's it's going to be hard for you to to be discussed with in the same category. Um, they don't really have the edge presence uh, outside of a Will Anderson who's young and, and just he, he doesn't do the things that even an Anthony Jennings did, who was just a guy that was just super scrappy and set the edge and gave you a little bit in pass rush, but just a tough physical. He was just a good football player. And so I think that Notre Dame, if you're talking about just lining up one on one, mano a mano, I think they could do more than hold their own. The problem is this Alabama defense moves around a lot. You're going to get stunts. You're going to get blitz packages. You're going to get pressures. Uh, you're going to get movement. And they're so quick and athletic that that's where they then become problematic. But you can use that against them. And if Notre Dame did get – you line up a couple extra tight ends, you widen out that front, that gives you a couple extra running lanes or at least widens the running lanes that you have a chance for a Kyron Williams to sort of fit into. Um, or you get a guy that, that reacts the wrong way, now all of a sudden your quarterback bootleg could turn into a 15, 20-yard game, or you get a guy out of coverage, you can hit somebody down the field. So those are the places that I think Notre Dame can have some success, and I think that's where they have to live. You know, defense is a different deal because yeah, – let, 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 me, let me just – before you go into the defense, let me just hit you with this because – so I, I talked to you about you, – you think one way on the defense as far as how they should play. I had talked to Greg McElroy for that same story. Um, you know, of course, the Alabama guy, he gave me something completely different than what you said. But I'm just going to say I, I wanted to bring it up to you <laughs> because I thought it was interesting. Basically, what Greg said was like, listen, if I'm Clark Lee, whatever's in my pressures file – I'm dumping it. I'm I'm using I'm going to try to overload, you know, Landon Dickerson's not there. Maybe they call the wrong protections and I'm just going to try nobody has touched Mac Jones, but I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to try to do it. I'm going to try to get Mac Jones off schedule. That was Greg's idea. Now I know your idea and it's very different from what Greg suggested on how to try to disrupt an Alabama offense, which is ultimately you know, we can make all these arguments about what Alabama's defense is, but they have the ability to score almost every time they touch the ball. So at some point, like you're probably going to have to get into the near 30s to beat them, and and even that is like a, would be a huge success. So how does Notre Dame get it to the point where they can maybe hold them into the low to mid low 30s? Yeah, see, the, the thing about Greg's philosophy, it's 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 buying. A, you're driving down the road to the beach and you buy a lottery ticket, right? And what the next three hours on, on the way to wherever you're staying is talking about how you're going to spend your money. So it, that's, it's really cool to talk about and it's really fun to think about, but it's probably not going to happen. Um, I've seen that plan multiple times this year. I've seen people try to go after them. Um, the team that had the most success doing it was Mississippi State. And if you watch the first three, four series of that game, they were they were fairly problematic. And Al, they gave them some headaches. And there was Landon Dickerson missed a pressure at one point in that game. Najee missed a pressure at one point in that game. I think Alabama's actually – I mean, we just mentioned a few a few seconds ago that that was Halloween. I think this team is even very different than they were then. And I also think you're doing a little bit of a disservice to Kyle Flood and you're doing a little bit of disservice to the guy that just won the Broyles Award and Steve Sarkeesian, you don't think that they know that their starting center's out and that they're going to try to at least spread around? They're not just going to go ahead and dump everything on Chris Owens right away. I mean, I would anticipate probably a little more slide protection. 
I would anticipate Mac Jones probably having a little more say in some of the protections uh, instead of maybe relying on Landon Dickerson at times. Uh, maybe you call protection and you just leave it, if, even if that means an extra body stays in that you don't need and you don't put him out on a route. They'll know how to adjust to that. And th- the problem with bringing pressure against Alabama is options. And the thing that makes this Alabama offense so different, so unique, and in my opinion, so dangerous, is that they don't live and die on the RPO. Their most lethal passing play is the play action. And it is old school, West Coast. And I've talked to Lane Kiffin about it. And he told us stories about he and Sark would sit in the back of the Denver meeting rooms. um, And they wanted to go study the Alex Gibbs running game. And they wanted to go study the Shanahan passing game and, and drop game. And protection game. And so he told me, he's like, me and Sark are sitting in the back there with, you know, with baby Shanahan sitting there listening on, on how to <laughs> how to learn this stuff. And so, you know, we still use it to this day. And Sark kind of reiterated that. He's like, yeah, it's the same stuff that we learned then. There's not a lot of teams, Ralph, that run your traditional old school, heavy, long, you know, play action where you're faking a handoff and that quarterback's taking two, three more steps. Then he's coming up out of that fake, and he's going to deliver a ball down the field. Like That lengthy play action, that slow-developing play action is almost non-existent in today's college football. But Alabama works it, and they work it well. They'll add some half rolls with that. They'll add some actual rollouts, some sprint outs. I mean, they, they do a lot of cool stuff in their drop game that makes them different and makes them unique. So if you're going to pressure them, you better catch them in a – you better catch them in a protection, not just a protection that's advantageous for you to get there, but in a drop that's advantageous for you to get there. Because if it's a little half roll, well, Mac Jones is going to see that immediately. If it's a heavy play action, that means the tight end and the running backs are probably staying in. So you don't have a good chance of getting there anyway. Um, so I, I think that you're, you're really rolling the dice there. And the only thing that I've even seen be mildly successful against this offense is what Barry Odom did a couple of weeks ago. And I've, I've talked to a lot of different people in this league. I've talked to other defensive coordinators in the SEC. I've asked them. They've all kind of scratched their head. And I've said, when is someone going to sit back on this team? When is someone just going to play, you know, quarters or two deep or three deep and just say, you know what, we're going to rush three, drop eight. And if Najee Harris carries it 50 times for 392 yards and six touchdowns, so be it. At least it took you longer to do it. <laughs> and we made you work. And we gave ourselves more opportunities for you to make a mistake, which they don't make many of. So if it's me, especially with one of the best safeties in college football, where you can allow him to roam and him a little more space to maybe go create by himself and make some plays, I sit back on Alabama because I think Notre Dame has a pretty physical front four, a pretty physical front seven. So I would try to play lighter in the box. Because you just mentioned the mental part of Landon Dickerson being gone. There's also a physical part of him being gone. He is the tone setter. He is the attitude. He is the mean. He is the nasty on that offensive line. Well, he's obviously, he's not there anymore. So maybe that works against him a little bit. I sit back on Alabama, and I make them work underneath. I make them throw short passes, and I make them hand the football off. And I understand that Devonta Smith can take a five-yard slant and go 80, obviously. But I would rather have take my chances with that with a pretty good tackling team than allowing him double moves to be able to go up over the top where we got a single safety that's trying to go sideline to sideline or we're trying to play some sort of man coverage or some sort of combo coverage where you know we're, we're, we're pattern matching and doing different things like that. I just sit back on them. And that works into what I think your offensive game plan has to be. So now 
you're not essentially playing combative football with yourself. Everything's working towards the same goal. Because let's be perfectly honest here. There, Notre Dame has a very, very fine, minute, fine print roadmap on how to win this football game. Yeah, it's a I mean, narrow no, path. Is, it's a very narrow no path. different than the Georgia game that we talked about in yeah. week three or whatever it was. Like, Notre Dame had one direct path to go win this game. If they ventured off that path, if they stepped outside of the lines in the road at one time, they probably weren't going to win it. Well, Alabama had about – you, know, you get the alternate routes on your GPS. Alabama had like 16 of those. It's like, do you want the fastest? Do you want the shortest? Do you want the less traffic? Do you want the scenic? Whatever you want. Like Alabama could go all these different ways. It's the same thing in this game. Notre Dame's got one path to win this game. So I would want as many signs on my compass pointing in the same direction down the same path for me to have a chance in the fourth quarter to be in this game. Much less win it. Just give us a shot in the – and that, and that takes you back to the first Clemson game. Give us an opportunity late to figure something out after we've made our adjustments and try to go get a win, whether that's kicking a field goal, whether it's getting an onside kick, whether it's having an explosive pass play from our veteran quarterback, whatever that is, give us an opportunity late. And if we're going to do that, we need all signs pointing to yes, so to speak. You can't have one side of the ball or your special teams or a couple different position groups you know, playing high risk or playing outside of your game plan just because you think it's cool or fun or what you saw somebody else do. You have to play within yourself, and I think that plan has to all be working together if you're going to even have a chance to win this game. Okay, so I'll do very. I will quickly wrap up on this game with a, a, a prediction. I, you know, listen again. I, I think it's going to be really hard for Notre Dame to keep it even, even to cover the spread, and it's almost twenty points. Uh, and again, that's not necessarily a big knock on Notre Dame. It's just that this Alabama team is playing offense the way we we watched LSU play offense last year and thought, oh my gosh, that's maybe the greatest offense in college football history. And this Alabama team is putting up similar numbers against an all SEC schedule. So again, I'm not I don't feel like I'm slighting Notre Dame by saying like, hey man, I think Alabama's gonna run this up. So we'll 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 end this part of this of the show on what do you think the final score is going to be? I will say um, I'll go 42-14, Alabama. That would look a lot like it did in the BCS championship game. <laughs> That's the exact same I think same it'll score. look different, but yeah. yeah I, no, it's I hear not going to be Eddie Lacy spin move, Eddie Lacy running through tackles, but it will, uh, it will be a different Alabama star, mm-hmm. um, most likely named Devonta Smith, and probably a couple surprise plays from um, a Billingsley tight end and um, – you know, maybe a Najee Harris here and there. Yeah, how about how about that? Like like two thirds of the way through the season, Alabama goes, "Oh yeah, Kyle Pitts. We got we got a guy just like that." Like so, and they and now I know I don't comparing Billingsley to Kyle Pitts is a big that's a big comparison because Kyle Pitts is amazing. He's going to be a top ten pick, but but nonetheless, like they have a player kind of like that that they just dusted off midway through the season because <laughs> like they thought, oh, this would be a nice addition to the offense. So that's where Alabama. And Notre Dame is. We're going to take. A there very- are multiple people in that facility that will tell you that he's the most athletic player on that team. 
by the way. I, I mean, he's going to be a superstar. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, well, I guess that, that might be a little bit of a stretch. He has the potential to be a superstar. And again, he was a guy who was implemented into the offense about two-thirds of the way through the season. Okay, let's take a quick break here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, talking to Cole Kubelik from the SEC Network and ESPN and WJOX down in Birmingham. We'll come back and talk about Ohio State, Clemson, break that one down on the AP Top 25 college football podcast right after this. The market is constantly changing. The Marketplace Minute keeps you up to date one minute at a time. When you're just waking up. Ugh, Alexa, play Marketplace Minute. All operators file for bankruptcy. On your way to lunch. Hey Siri, play Marketplace Minute. Says it's been spending more on hiring. Right after you tuck in the kids at night. Hey Google, play the Marketplace Minute. Or upward swings in indices in Europe. The Marketplace Minute, a podcast and smart speaker briefing updated three times daily. Ask your smart speaker to play the Marketplace Minute. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Cole Kubelik, my friend, breaking down the college football playoff. We got done with Alabama and Notre Dame. Tried to give you a path there for Notre Dame to possibly keep this a game. Uh, it's a narrow one, but Cole did the best he can to try to present it, present the case there. Clemson, Ohio State has a chance to be, I think, a pretty damn good one, kind of like it was last year. Um I don't have to come up with, let's say, like, how does one team keep this close here? Let's just start with um, Clemson has the ball. This is a different Ohio State defense than last year because it does not have an all-time, you know, an all-timer pass rusher top five pick in Chase Young. It also does not have a lockdown corner top five pick in Jeff Okuda. So what does that present as far as challenges to Ohio State stopping this Clemson offense? Oh, there, there are multiple challenges in slowing this offense down. I, 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 it's funny because last year going into this game, I, I kind of looked at everything across the board with Clemson and I said, Travis Etienne is, is going to, to – he's going to command so much attention front side and the receivers are, are so good that they're going to command attention down the field. So I envisioned – that the fronts would sort of lean toward because Clemson a lot of times will, will give away where their run's going to go. That, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that because it's usually a read play. But if you're, if your running back is offset to the right, then you obviously are anticipating the majority of the runs are then going to go to the, to the left across the quarterback, that the fronts would be slid that direction. The safeties would be at bay to take away the explosive plays. And there would be a lot of running room for Trevor Lawrence. Just because that's that's sort of structurally how you had to play him to just not get pulverized, and you kind of saw it in this game last year where Trevor caught some big runs and he was able to to make some of that happen. The problem is this year I I don't believe that the Clemson rushing attack is is moving at the same rate that it was last season. That's not to say that Travis ATN is not great; he still is. They've used him in some different ways, but because the offensive line is not playing at the level it was a season ago. And ATN's having to be used in a few different ways. I think Notre Dame could maybe play, or excuse me, Ohio State could maybe play with a lighter box and maybe not try to play as many guys down near the line of scrimmage and, and still sort of neutralize that. Um, and it's interesting because I, I, when, when I would go watch Ohio State last year, I mean, Chase Young was amazing. It's hard to take your eyes off of him, but 
I was constantly looking at man, like this Devin Hamilton dude. Like he just wrecks people. Yeah, he's he was, he was a really Cornell, good player. Like, yeah, he makes he makes plays every now and then. Like this Malik Harrison dude. Like he can fly. And like this Jordan Fuller, he's coming out of nowhere. I think even if they had the individual star power at one or two positions, I don't I don't know if that would make all the difference, Ralph, because they had so many other role players that were really good at what they did and took advantage of the situations that those superstars provided them, be it combo coverage, helping in coverage, one-on-ones with the center or a guard or the other defensive end, being able to pressure and not having to worry about a tight end or a back being able to help with them because they were over there looking at this defensive end that was looked like the predator coming off the edge. That, and they just they don't collectively have near as much as they did. That's outside the, the superstar power that they had at a couple places a season ago. So I, I think that the, the problem will be down the field. I, I think Ohio State is still physical enough at the line of scrimmage, good enough, talented enough at the line of scrimmage to be able to be problematic, and a lot of that having to do with the fact that, that that Clemson offensive line, not as good, but it's not just Amari Rogers. And Cornell Powell is a guy that people probably need to familiarize themselves with because this guy is electric. He is dynamic. Now, I will be fair and say he is going to give you one or two bad drops a game, but he's almost guaranteed to give you a Sports Center top 10 a game as well. He he is that crazy athletic and fast and explosive and twitchy. And it's funny that we talked about Billingsley because I think Clemson has one of those guys too. Like I think Braden Galloway is just waiting to explode and and waiting to have that game where people say, Holy hell, where has this guy been? Like how do we not know this guy's name? How are we not talking about him going in the first round? Because I can't believe he just did that. And you're talking about 6'4", 250, super athletic, very loose. I mean, it looks like a wide receiver, a good wide receiver playing tight end. So I, I think there, there's more out on the perimeter that, that Clemson has that people may not really know about. The way that they use ATN out on the perimeter. I think that's where the focus has to be for Ohio State. And, I mean, it's kind of like Alabama against Florida, like, we can sit here and say, man, that Alabama defense got shredded. Well, who's matching up with Kadarius Tony and Kyle Pitts? Like you're not, I don't care who you are. You're just you're just not. No one has those matchups. And I think when you go Rodgers, Powell, Galloway, ATN out of the backfield, whether that's motioning or just routes out of the backfield, I don't think anybody can really match up with that. So if it means Clemson has to go a little bit faster to sort of trap Ohio State to get the matchups that they like. If they have to use a little bit more motion pre-snap, I think you might see some of that. But I think Clemson will dial in, focus in on individual matchups in this game, and I think they will attack them. And without that star power and without the cast around them for Ohio State, I think that's their their biggest issue. I, I don't think Clemson has a lot of success running the ball. Um, and I don't even think it, it, the only part of I think that, that Trevor's legs may may really benefit him in this game is if the protection breaks down, and because Clemson does have some some longer developing routes, they like to hit you down the field. But one thing that they do, and they're definitely not afraid of, very similar to LSU last year, they'll attack the middle of the field, and that is something that a lot of college teams are deathly afraid of. This is not one of them, and so. I think when they get some of those matchups or they see this Ohio State defense playing them a different way that maybe fits to what they want to try to do, 
they're going to be able to find some success. I think most of it will come through the air. It might be higher percentage throws, higher percentage throws, throws closer to the line of scrimmage, quicker throws. Some people would say easier throws for Trevor Lawrence, but they're going to figure those matchups out pretty quick, and they're going to continue to find ways to get them. And I think that's going to be a big problem for Ohio State's defense. Now, Ohio State on the other side. Now, last year, you know, it was such a crazy finish. Ohio State had a build, had a big lead in that game, and really could have had an even bigger lead. And they mostly got there by running the hell out of the ball. Now they don't have J.K. Dobbins this year, but Trey Sermon is pretty good, and J- Trey Sermon just dropped three hundred on on Northwestern. And you know, I know. Clemson will have more dudes than Northwestern, but that's a pretty good Northwestern defense. And and I, I kind of find myself wondering if, you know, as good as Justin Fields is and as good as Alave and Garrett Wilson are, yeah, this could be another another game where Ohio State gets that running game going and and does some damage against that Clemson defense, just run the ball behind Davis and Myers, and which is a really good offensive line. I think Wyatt Davis is the best right guard in college football. I think Josh Myers is one of the best centers in college football. Um, my concern for Ohio State in this game, Ralph, is there, there have been some things. It, it took them a little while to get going, and that's understandable. You know, you don't you don't pause for that long, and then all of a sudden, last minute, decide, okay, we're going to go, and then you get a kid like Wyatt who had decided to go ahead and move on and start training for the NFL. He's got to get reinstated and come back and all this. I mean, the, 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 a lot of the Big Ten player situation was much different in a very different season uh, to get back and get acclimated and get ready to play. So it didn't surprise me that it took that group a little while to sort of get things rolling, to get lathered up. And they do look like they're playing much better ball the last two, three games I've watched them than they were early in the season. But there is a, there's a consistent issue, and it's not just with those five, but there is a consistent issue on that side of the ball that scares me. And that it's a recognition problem that they have. And when you have a veteran quarterback and a veteran center and some veteran offensive linemen, and I understand that, that some of the tight ends and running backs are newer to this offense as far as how much they play and what they do, there, there has been a consistent recognition issue with this team as far as stunts, blitzes, pressures, uh, maybe even just alignment. I, I have seen way too many guys turn loose by this Ohio State offensive line. I've seen way too many blitzers turn loose by tight ends and running backs. I've seen way too many pressures that the quarterback has just flat out missed. And some of those have resulted in turnovers. Some of those have resulted in sacks. Some of those have resulted in throwaways. Some of them have resulted in wasted explosive plays. Because I've seen on film where there have been plays there for the taking and one thing has been missed. That's what sucks about offense. One guy breaks down. One guy misses one thing. And you got ten other guys that do everything perfect. You may not have the opportunity to execute that play or, or go get that play that's actually there for the taking. And I have seen that time and time again from this Ohio State offense. And I'm not saying that it's something that happens 15 or 20 times a game, but it happens multiple times a game. And where that becomes very problematic is not any defensive lineman or any linebacker or any corner or any safety that they will face in this game. It comes with the brains of the operation that orders all those guys where to go, what to do, and who to be. Because they will get every look. They will get every pressure. They will get every stunt. They will get shifts pre-snap. They'll get movement post-snap. They'll get guys lining up in places that they're not supposed to line up. So if you have recognition issues, 
you better be able to get them fixed in a hurry against a Brent Venables defense. Because if you don't, he's going to make you look silly for four quarters of football. You go back to the LSU game last year. He gave that offense more headaches the first maybe three to five series than anybody did all season. Hey, they but, pun- they punted more in that game. Now, they still scored, I think, close to 50. But they punted more in that game than they had all season. Right. And that's, and that's what made that offense so great. And the only way that I knew how to describe it last year was that, you know, they were, they were sort of the Deontay Wilder of, of college football. <laughs> they just – they had a haymaker that if it caught you – there was nothing you could do about it. You're going down. And they kept throwing it and kept throwing it and kept throwing it. You could sit there and point them to death. And if, you, if they would have gone to the scorecard, they were probably going to lose. But it didn't matter because they kept throwing that haymaker. And LSU just they threw haymakers literally on every drive. So eventually they were going to hit. They were going to hit. They were going to hit. And that's what happened to Clemson. I mean, it's just you, you, sometimes you know teams figure things out and – they made the right adjustments. They had a guy pulling the trigger that knew how to make those adjustments. They had a great offensive line, great skill guys. They had the brains behind the operation were a little bit better on that night. But if you have any sort of recognition issues, um, and, and it's funny because, you know, Aaron Taylor and I and Duke Manyweather, we actually took the Joe Moore Award to Baton Rouge, and we had the conversation with them about that game. And, you know, recognition was a big part of it and what they anticipated, what they thought they were going to get, what they thought they were going to see. And, it's just kind of how it played out was was pretty interesting based on the things that they thought and the things that actually happened. If if that's something that your group inherently struggles with, it's it's very hard to just repair it without oversimplifying things. And when you oversimplify against another really good team, you put yourself in a bad situation. So I I, I Justin Fields cannot afford to make mistakes. Um, I think that there needs to be a game plan that allows for recognition to maybe fall off or be missed. A lot of zone stuff where you can kind of pick it up no matter what. A lot of slide protection. Maybe even some quarterback reads where he has the option to pull it and run it. Kind of going back to what I said about Trevor's legs last year, and maybe for different reasons, I think the legs of Justin Fields are, are going to be overly critical in this game against Clemson because he he is athletic enough to break you down. He's athletic enough to hurt you different ways. And I think if they can find a way to recognize where they're going to get some of that pressure and where they think it's coming from, if it were me, I designed some quarterback runs where I have an extra blocker and I have an extra body to be able to handle it and manage it because I know I have a guy running the football at the quarterback position that can create and give me big plays. And I, I think that's what has to happen for Ohio State. And the interesting part is the one thing that we kind of don't really know for sure about Ohio State yet, and, and you, know, you brought him up, and that is Trey Sermon. Because I, I think when, when you watched them early in the year with Master Teague, it was kind of like he had two directions on his compass. Like he had north and south. Like he, he was – I mean he, he was a violent north, a violent south, but – it, there wasn't a lot of east and west. Now Trey Sermon is a little more twitchy, a little bit more change of direction, and you know, like his compass goes full circle whenever he needs it to. So that dynamic does change things a little bit. But even though it's just a good Ohio State offensive line, I'm a big fan of Wyatt Davis. Um, I mean, listen, any, anybody who was birthed thanks to one Alvin Mack, you, you know, you're going to get something special there. So. <laughs> But hey, hey, I, I, I just don't think that this Ohio State offensive line can go bully a Clemson defensive line that's that's not only big, physical, athletic, and fast, but is also 
going to be put in positions to attack, disrupt, and make plays on almost every down. What do you think about this? Um, so there's been a lot of talk throughout the season, and it's really been something that's been talked about if you talk to certain coaches behind the scenes uh, for a while, the idea about Clemson being good at sign stealing. And it came up, and I, I ask you again, I ask you this because we are recording it on Monday night earlier today. Ryan Day kind of alluded to it in a in a backdoor way he sort of said listen they 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 always seem to have they or I can't I have to look I don't want to look up the exact quote but he basically said they they seem to know what's coming or they always seem or they often seem to be exactly where you know your play is supposed to go I'm not sure how they do it but they've been doing it for a long time so he kind of gave a little life to the idea that you know maybe they're good at sign stealing where do you stand on this whole sign stealing thing? A, have you heard the same things about Clemson? And B, is like, is this a big deal, or is this just something like, <laughs> hey, if, if they're stealing your signs, that's no. a you problem? It's a massive deal. Um, I got a couple examples for you. Um, there, there are offensive coaches in that I know of in college football that have literally made a living from from sign stealing. Um, and usually it's, offensive it's the coaches. Guy, it's yeah. offensive yes. coaches. It's, it's usually the guys that, that they will wait and they'll, they'll look and then the quarterback will look over right. and right. then they'll, they'll, they'll call another play and they'll go or they'll leave it on. Uh, defensive of, co- defensive coaches have been guys, yeah defensive coaches have been complaining about that aspect of the the, sure. the no huddle offense where they're just sort of the, the check with me is essentially you're checking with the sidelines because the coach is figuring out what the defense is calling. Well, and there's a lot of them that just want to know what they're in, but then there are some that actually know what they're going to run, mm-hmm. and that's that's when I think you you sort of take it to the next level. I had a, a really cool conversation with Will Muschamp a long time ago, and. There was this rumor going around the SEC that a, a, a defensive line coach that had been let go at a different school had sort of uh, shared the defensive playbook with other teams in the league because he was mad about being let go, whatever it was. And kind of asked Will about that. It was actually Tom and I were in the meeting in Jordan, and, and Tom's the one that asked him about it, Tom Hart. And and Will just kind of laughed, and he was like hey, – hey, and he turns around – and he grabs this giant binder from behind his desk and he pops it on his desk. And he's like, here's my playbook, man. You can have it. <laughs> I, I, he's like, I don't care if you have my playbook. He goes, hell, you can actually, believe it or not, go get video of our entire playbook. And you can see what we run and how we run it and what we do. And, you know, we all kind of laugh because, yeah, you can go – all coaches can go watch the film. You could. I would rather see it than see a bunch of X's and O's with arrows drawn where guys are going. But then he stopped and he said, now, you steal my signs – we got a completely different problem on our hands. Mm-hmm. That's where things really begin to unravel. Um, now, have I heard about it? I mean, hell, Ralph, some, there was an article written about it earlier this well, year. Well, right, and, and that was uh, Pat Forty did a really good, yeah, did a really good job. To, yeah, yeah, and, and that's no, and, and it was the article was fine, but I was just kind of like, whoa, we're, I mean, so this is like out there, out there now, <laughs> right? <laughs> just, right, okay. Um, I've I've heard a lot of people talk about it. I have no no knowledge of if it's done, when it's done, how it's done. Um, as long as there are no New England Patriot tactics as to how that information is gathered, then it's fair game as far as I'm concerned. 
Um, I'll never forget when I was a, I was a, I think I was a sophomore in high school and I was playing in a, in a varsity baseball game. And my dad, he comes down and he comes to the game and we bat in the first inning. And I was, I was a DH. So I was kind of in the dugout and my dad had this very distinct whistle and he, you know, like we go out into the field and I'm still in the dugout and he hits this whistle and I look back and he kind of calls me over to the fence down, down the first baseline and he says, "Hey, so um, so I've, I've got their signals. I've got their <laughs> I've got their calls. And so, just tell your teammates if I yell their first name, it's a fastball. If I yell like let's go, their last name, then it's going to be an off-speed pitch. And sure enough, Ralph, I mean, it was every single yeah, he had it. Mr. Cube had like, like an Astros thing how, going there. I'm like how in the <laughs> like one inning." How in the hell after one inning do you have that? But he, I mean, and, and he had it nailed and we, we raked for like two innings and got the kid out of the game. But there, I truly believe that there are just certain people that have a gift for being able to watch that and, and know, they just know, they can just tell, they know what the indicators are. They know what the play calls look like. And all these guys are all playing the same teams every year. So they know how to figure it out. Now, obviously you get to the postseason that changes a little bit because you don't see them as much. But as long as there's no illegal video being shared, yeah. and and I'll tell you one thing that's really dangerous, and I've I've heard other defensive coaches reference this before. If you ever get a guy that tells you, "Oh yeah, well I watch the TV tape almost more than I watch the coaches cut," that's that's you want to talk about indicators. There's a big indicator right there of, of what somebody's up to. Okay. Because they ain't watching that to see when the head coach gets angry on, on the sideline. They're not, they're not watching that to see uh, you know, how they're huddling up their special teams before they send out the kicking units. Um, that's, I believe, what they're watching that for. So Interesting. It happens a lot of different places. There are a lot of different methods in which people do it. Um, I think you've got to be smart enough to know. Um, like I just had the Montgomery Bowl. And... The two defensive coordinators in that game had actually worked together at one point. So there was a conversation basically saying, okay, like we, we know for a fact that we have had Mike McIntyre and Jim Levitt on the same staff at Colorado. Like we can't go out there and call this game the exact same way that we normally would. This, they're running the same stuff. The signals haven't changed in 20 years. So you got to know as a coach to do things a different way. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what the great coaches do. They self-scout. They self-evaluate. They understand how to change their procedure and their process going into a game and how they manage things in a game. So I would anticipate that, yeah. And, and you said that uh, you, you kind of said, I, I feel like you let Ryan Day off the hook a little bit there. That, that quote sounds to me like he knows exactly what he believes is going on. Okay. And he is basically saying, we know what you're going to try to do. We're going to do everything we can to keep you from doing it. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, well, again, to a certain degree, right, with sign stealing, it, it again, I often feel like it's a little bit of a you problem, right? If you let it happen, like, I'm not saying, you know, clearly, right, there there's some gamesmanship on the other side and you can call it maybe cheating, but I'm not sure if I would call it that. Um, but essentially, again, if you let it happen, well, again, that and you know it could happen, then that's a you problem, and you and you I mean, got to get Ralph, it fixed. There's a, there's a famous story about a coach in um, one of the final BCS national championship games 
that was on the other staff the previous year. <laughs> you could just say Auburn, Florida, he, Florida State. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying any names or any schools. However, that fan base will still lose their minds and tell you that oh, they're stealing our signs the entire game. And I'm sitting. All I can think of when people say that is, but you knew going into the game that that guy was there less than a year ago. How did you not know to change something? Going into like that is one hundred percent a you problem, because if you were on the other side and you knew your coach knew those signals and was not sharing them with his team, you would then want that coach fired <laughs> right. for not trying to help his team win the game the best that he could. All right, give me a score on Clemson. Al- uh, excuse me, give me a score on Clemson, Ohio State. Uh, I'll go 31-24 Clemson. Okay. Uh, I think I think that we talked about Trey Sermon that run game. I think I think Ohio State can get a little bit of that going. Um, would not be surprised to see both teams kind of throttle back early, sort of because of some of those recognition issues. Want to at least try to get a feel for what Venables is going to do in this game. And, and even though the the running attack has not been the same this year, I still think Clemson wants to try to get ATM going. At least see how mm-hmm. that defense reacts to him, see how they're aligned, see what they're trying to take away. It takes a couple series to really figure that out. But I think Clemson's just got too much in the end. Okay, last thing I want to talk to you about is, because you are an, an Auburn guy, um, though you, you do a good job of playing it straight and and not showing that that you know that that war eagle side of you when you're calling all these games but listen you you know you went to school there so i'm sure the place has a, a special place in your heart and they just hired a new coach uh, i thought the brian harson move i i listen I, i'm done rating coaching moves like we don't really know what these guys are going to do <laughs> until they do it so unless it's urban meyer i'm out of that game uh, you know but i will say this I like the fact that you hire a coach with a track record of winning. That generally is a good sign that he will continue to be a winner. I also like when an SEC school occasionally steps outside of its borders and doesn't default to, if you ain't SEC, you can't be SEC, and we're only going to hire SEC. So I like those two elements of the hire. What do you think? I thought it was a very good, very strong hire. Uh, before we get into actually the coaching aspects of it, I, I felt like it was a gigantic step. I held not even a step, Ralph. I, I think it was a giant leap for Auburn athletics. Um, this was an Alan Green move. Alan Green is the athletic director yeah. at Auburn. Just on the way it went down is what you're. The thinking. fact yeah. that that this was his guy, and he knew that this guy was on his list, and he vetted the interest. He went and found out that it was somewhat possible. He had to go sell the search committee on this candidate. He was able to do that, and he was able to get with President Gouge and be able to make it happen. Uh, for those that don't really have a true understanding of how the Auburn power structure has worked for a very long time, um, it, it has been run. Uh, the majority of it has been run by a select group of boosters um, at different times, one, sometimes two, and that has changed hands a few times um, at different points over the last 20, 30 years. But that is not the way that this went down. This was not a good old boy hire. This was not a we have to hire an Auburn man. This was not a, uh, you know, he didn't – did he play for Pat Dye? Does he know Pat Dye? Was he around Pat Dye? So we have to go get him. Um, you know, this was, this was what was most likely the majority believed to be in the best interest of Auburn University, Auburn athletics, and Auburn football. And I think that is just a massive, massive step. 
Um, and if people think I'm silly for making a big deal of that, then you have no idea the amount of corruption <laughs> that's taken place in Auburn athletics for the last 30 years. Um, now on to the, to the coaching aspect of it. I've been around Coach Harson. I've, I've covered I covered a couple of his games when he was at Arkansas State. I've had a couple of Boise games when he was there. I think the guy is just magnificent. He's laser focused. He, the thing that I like about him, and the thing that I think that, that he's going to bring that people appreciate the most is how, just how consistent he is. And because he's a super intense guy, but he's not one of those guys that just has to flip flip out and fly off the handle and lose his cool. Every time something goes wrong on the sideline, you're not going to see him going crazy in the media, calling people out and yelling and, you know, wearing Halloween costumes to the press conference and things like that. Like he is going to be very consistent, very smooth, but he's a very intense guy at the same time. He demands excellence in all aspects of his program. He keeps the majority of the things in his program inside of his program. And I think he's going to bring a little bit more of a a hard-nosed physical mentality back to Auburn football that the majority of Auburn football fans will appreciate. And, and I'll, I'll just add this. Um, I think he has a very big advantage in taking over this job because of what Gus Malzahn did. And people can talk about the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows, the peaks and valleys. But Gus Malzahn left this program on very good footing, Ralph. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are no NCAA issues. There are no academic issues. There are no behavioral issues inside that program there's not 20 30 guys that need to be run out of that program the roster does not need to be overhauled uh there's not going to need to be a mentality reset so to speak like there was in 1998 when i was playing and we went from terry bound to tommy tuberville or some other programs that have been in the cellar and they've needed a guy to come in and sort of restart and, and reinvent everything that they do because of gus malzahn brian harson will not have to do that um now we can go into a completely different discussion about the X's and O's and the game planning and the in-game coaching, all those things are different. But Gus Malzahn deserves a lot of credit and a lot of respect for the footing that he left this program on. And I think Brian Harson's ready for it. I think he's ready to take that step. I think that's one of the main reasons he wanted to do this. He wanted to challenge himself. He believes in himself. He believes in his process. You look at the coaching tree that he's been around. He's been at Texas, so he, he, he understands the political side of things too and that that game's going to have to be played. And I believe he has a little bit more of a national reach when it comes to assistance than some people might believe. I think that'll probably be proven when he announces his staff. This will not be a, hey, well, we're just bringing the boys over from Boise and they're now going to coach at Auburn. He's a very intelligent man and he knows that it's going to take some SEC wherewithal to be successful. Um, But you brought it up earlier and it's a really good point. You know, this you've got to be SEC to win in the SEC that kind of hadn't been working out so well the last it's, few years. It's been a little. Fi- it's been a little iffy. So, I'll just put it I'll, that way. And I'll say there have been a couple that I thought were going to be home runs that have yeah. have hardly been, uh, you know, dribble singles down the third baseline. <laughs> right. So um, I think it's a fresh, new, energetic hire. It didn't win the press conference, and a ton of Auburn fans had to go Google who he was. That's fine. He is a hell of a coach. He's a good coach. He's a solid coach. I think it's a good, solid hire. I would probably give it a B-plus right now. Um, and depending on his staff, I, I think it has a chance to maybe go to, to an A, A-minus hire. Uh, but I need to see who that is first. And, and one last thing is, I know Brian Harson has, and I've talked to multiple assistants around the country about this, not just in the SEC. He has a very good reputation of being a great boss and somebody that assistants love to work for. And I think that may be most beneficial for him taking this job because it will help him attract 
guys that he needs to add and come in and help Auburn continue to do what they're doing and then hopefully go to the next level and accomplish even more than they have the last few years. Coleman, always great stuff on the playoff and on Auburn. I appreciate your time and all your insight. Uh, I kept you a little longer than I anticipated, but you got the kids to bed, so you had a little time on your hands. It's all good. I got my little 10-minute cat nap when I put my daughter to bed, laid down with her and told her a story and fell asleep for a few minutes. So I'm re-energized now. I'm I'm ready to go. There you go. I used to do that, too, when when mine was that age. But at this point, uh, yeah, now she – the one thing just to remind remind you or just to let you know, at a certain point, she will want nothing to do with you. So just be prepared for it. Trust me. Yeah, I've I've had that conversation. My my boss at ESPN, Steve Ackles, has told me – I actually told him that I did that. I said, I kind of love it because it's kind of like my my reset time. Like I get in there and I doze off and I clear my mind. And he's like, enjoy it because it's going to be a couple years and she's not going to want you anywhere near when it's bedtime. <laughs> she's just going to want to go do her own thing. So yeah, it, um, it, I cherish it. My wife hates it because she knows I'm falling asleep usually when I go in there. <laughs> but uh, I, I love it. It goes by very fast. Again, Cole. Cole Kubelik from ESPN and SEC Network and WJOX down in Birmingham. You can catch him on all those platforms. He is one of the hardest working men in show business. Thanks so much. Happy New Year, Cole. Enjoy the games. Be safe and uh, enjoy the Outback Bowl. Thank you very much, Ralph. Enjoyed it. And now, three and out. First down. The AP All-America team was announced earlier today, today being Monday. And I'm a little biased, but I think it turned out pretty good. That said, I am a little like any other fan, and I'll find spots where I think the panel of AP voters who ultimately choose the team had some choices that I didn't agree with. Full disclosure, I don't vote. My role is to break ties and to find glaring omissions. Rarely do I override voters, and usually it's close calls on the second and third teams. One of the players I really would have liked to have made room for was Georgia cornerback Eric Stokes. He had a terrific year but didn't make any of the three AP teams. An argument could have been made he was deserving of first-team recognition. Ohio State's Sean Wade, a hell of a talent, was a first-team pick at corner, and I think that might have been more based on reputation than on production in his short season. I like the non-Power 5 players being well-represented on this year's team. Tulsa's Zavin Collins and Coastal Carolina's Taron Jackson were both first-team All-Americans. The second-team offense had two G5 receivers in Jalen Darden from North Texas and Jonathan Adams from Arkansas State. Cincinnati had two defensive backs, James Wiggins and Ahmad Gardner, on the second team. Second down. At quarterback on the All-America team, it was a close vote all around with Mac Jones getting first team, Florida's Kyle Trask second, and Trevor Lawrence on the third team. So here's something amazing. Trevor Lawrence is likely to leave college, having never been better than a third team AP All-American. Maybe not likely, maybe definitely. We're all pretty much sure that Trevor is not coming back. 
Now, you can say who cares about the AP, but that means Trevor won't be a consensus All-American, or at least is not likely to be a consensus All-American. AP is one of the All-America teams used to determine that designation. And my guess is Jones and Trask probably will take enough of the other teams, first team spots, to ensure Lawrence won't be a consensus All-American. Me personally, I would have had Trevor on the first team. And as I said last week on this show, Lawrence would be my Heisman pick, though Devontae Smith would be a worthy winner and I think will end up being a winner of the Heisman when we find out next week. I don't know if it's an indictment on college football's award system or just a quirky piece of Lawrence's magnificent career that one of the great quarterbacks in college football history is likely to leave without the usual accolades that come along with being an all-time great. Third down. I already have predictions for the semifinals in print, so I guess I have to stick with them. I have Alabama 45-21 and Clemson 31-28 setting up a fourth Clemson-Alabama championship playoff game. We'll check back next week to see if I'm right. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Sarah McCrory, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. And come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.